Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. If you're constantly in this sympathetic fight or flight state, if you're not digesting food downstream, what happens is bacterial overgrowth, maybe SIBO, lots of bloating, lots of gas, slow motility. Again, your body's not worried about processing food if there's another threat. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with the click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. And let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on The Last Rest Life, we have Dr. Heather Finley, who's a registered dietitian with a doctorate in clinical nutrition. She struggled with her own gut issues and chronic constipation for two decades, which left her confused about food, her social life in shambles, and food guilt at an all-time high. She went to college to study to be a dietitian, thinking she could solve her problems instead of having 
And instead of having clarity for why she was constipated, she was more confused than ever. When she started her doctorate program focused on a functional approach to clinical nutrition, a light bulb went off in her head and her entire mindset towards nutrition and gut health completely transformed. This is when she began to realize that nutrition for gut health is so much more than what you eat. So I'm glad we're going to get to talk about this today, Heather. Me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So I actually want to start right at the beginning slash end of your story there, because inconveniently, and this is maybe the case for a lot of undergrad, not like just us, that sometimes you're really not aptly prepared for real life. And I think the difference is, and I don't mean this in a super derogatory way, because I have hung out with people who have like short nutrition certifications and you still like time, there's not a replacement for time for depth. And so, I mean, even just now I'm going through a phase of practice where I'm kind of like upending some of my beliefs and changing things. And then because anything was broken, it was fine. I just got bored (laughs) and learn new things. And then you're in a rabbit hole. So my point is saying it's not to like say, oh, our education is total junk. There's always room for improvement in many, many places for all of us. Um, And so one thing I do appreciate about it is that we have a lot of physiology and biology. So if you have a good foundation, you can work from that you can do more, right? And so it's hard to learn that in our super duper short amount of time. So I kind of want to preface there because sometimes I think we spend too much time bad mouthing. And I wanted to like say, hey, this happens, but we're not super prepared. I actually like to talk about what happened kind of as you did your undergrad because there was a pretty stark difference from what you were doing then. And then how far between doing your undergrad, you had your own problems. Like what did you learn about in your undergrad that you tried to apply to yourself that did not work at all? Maybe that's the yeah. question. <laughs> no, and I 100% agree with you. Like, I don't resent my undergrad at all. I think I learned so much in a lot of different areas, but it's all very general, you know? So going deeper on some of these topics is helpful. So you can become an expert in that area. They have to teach you so much of the foundational knowledge in undergrad that there isn't enough time to maybe get to some of the stuff that now we know and and we do as clinicians. So yeah, the things that I had tried, (laughs) probably every elimination diet known to man, I had tried pretty much like anything that you can think of kind of more on like the conventional side of things. So taking Miralax, just eat more fiber, cut out sugar, don't eat meat, like kind of any extreme that you can think of, I tried because we really didn't learn a ton about like in-depth gut health. Of course, we had a course on GI, but it was major, you know, understanding the difference between IBS and IBD and not necessarily like if someone's constipated, like here's some things that you can think of to do there certainly wasn't any talk of like the gut brain connection or anything like that. And really, I mean, when I was an undergrad, not that it was like that long ago, but it was long enough that like the gut brain connection wasn't really known about very much. So part of it was that the science changed from the time that I graduated to now. I think if you have a class and you've taught it that way for 15 years, we don't always take in new research. So I think there's always changes in professors and whatnot, but you're right. The science has changed. And then just depending on what someone wants to teach or what someone finds valuable to that curriculum can really make a difference. So then how long between your undergrad and you going back to school was there? Like, why did you go back Mm -hmm. to school for your doctorate? 
Well, my husband says I went back because I'm a glutton for punishment and I just love school, which is true. I do love school. I vowed to him that I would never go to school again after finishing my doctorate, but that doesn't mean that I'll ever stop learning. I just won't probably officially ever go to school, school again. But there was about six years in between my undergrad and my doctorate program. So lots of time for work experience, lots of time for implementing things, lots of time. I had a private practice. My private practice in between my undergrad and then doctorate was primarily athletes because I was an athlete myself and also eating disorders. So I really was, I was seeing a lot of digestive health at the time, but they weren't necessarily coming to me because they had SIBO or because they were constipated or whatever else. They were coming to me for a training plan for their upcoming triathlon, or they were coming to me because they struggled with an eating disorder. And I slowly shifted out of kind of the sports nutrition world and primarily was seeing eating disorders. But that's actually what drove me to go back to school because I'm like, there is a huge disconnect here. All my clients have digestive issues. Obviously, I'm not going to put them on some super restrictive diet, and there's got to be a way to help them find relief from these digestive issues that they're having, which is making their recovery harder because they don't want to eat. They feel bloated. They feel full. They feel really uncomfortable, and it's not making their recovery any easier. So, of course, my own story as well as stories of hundreds of my patients is kind of what fueled me to go back to school of like, there's got to be something else that I'm missing here. And there's another way that I can help these people. And I just don't have the tools to do that right now. And so I was just eager to learn what that was. And that's kind of when I started learning more about functional and integrative nutrition, learned about the doctorate program at MUIH and started that program. And really, it kind of shifted everything. Yeah. So this is a great point, because as you mentioned, all of your sports nutrition and your disordered eating clients had GI issues, which, you know, brought you back to your own situation to some extent as well. So do you know what that overlap is? It's really, really, I can say that it's very significant, right? That disordered eating often the next thing that happens is GI issues. You were seeing it in every single person. I don't know if you have stats on that or not. If not, this is a good enough stat. Every, every client had GI issues. Let's talk about why that happens. Yeah. So Simply put, if your body is underfueled, undernourished, overtrained, whatever it is, like you think of any kind of extreme behavior. So whether you're restricting calories, whether you're restricting all day, binging at night, whether you are over exercising, doing excessive amounts of cardio, or a combination of all of the above, purging obviously adds like a whole nother element to that. It has really detrimental effects kind of starting from the head down. So really, I mean, starting with your mindset around food, which affects your gut brain access. If you are stressed while you're eating, that's going to affect how you're digesting your food because your body can't digest food. If it's stressed, it's worried about running away from a tiger. So that's one piece of it. Just over time, if you're constantly in this sympathetic fight or flight state, if you're not digesting food, downstream, what happens is bacterial overgrowth, maybe SIBO, lots of bloating, lots of gas, slow motility. Again, your body's not worried about processing food if there's another threat. And so in that case, the threat could be 
you can't recover from all the exercise you're doing or even something as simple as if your body doesn't have enough calories, your gut is not an essential organ like your heart, your lungs, your brain are. And so if your body is trying to prioritize what gets fuel, the gut does not get a priority over your heart, your lung, your brain. And so it slows everything down. Slow motility leads to bacterial overgrowth that can lead to SIBO. And so it just becomes a super vicious cycle and often a chicken or egg scenario because it's like, okay, where do we even really start? There's so many different things going on here. You know, I'm struggling to eat enough calories. Now I might have low stomach acid from stress or zinc deficiency or whatever it might be from years of under eating. I also have slow motility which is leading me to be incredibly constipated, leading me to have lots of bacterial overgrowth. You know, the snowball just rolls and rolls and rolls. And so it can just get really overwhelming for clients of, all right, what do I even do about all of this? Right. Especially when you already have such a complex with food. And so, you know, the disordered eating line is getting, like the line between disordered and non-disordered eating, it's like it's getting wider, right? There is like super clinical for sure disordered eating. And then there's like poor food relationship, which is its own division as well. And so it's not like the emotions, even if you have a poor food relationship, I feel like all the same stuff applies. Like, 100%. Because it's not like whether you're severely restricting or you have a poor relationship with food, it's the same. And so another thing that we sometimes see is people will say, and I've actually like had to do a reassessment and I come to Jesus recently on this because story in 2017, I worked in a program around fasting and I didn't realize until kind of recently, like sometimes I had some bad habits around nutrition because of the time spent in that program for a year helping to create and facilitate and whatever the pieces there. There are research-based evidence for fasting, but for a lot of people, it's not good because the other thing that gets tamped down, you just talked about, and I'd like type when people are talking, it's just how I visualize what you're saying. But essentially, you know, you talked about everything starting in the brain. You talked about, I think the most important thing is everything slows down. And so when motility slows down, it allows things to become overgrown, With stress, you dump nutrients that are needed for digestion. And when things slow down, thyroid can slow down too. And that relates low metabolism. So this really gets frustrating because the narrative that's been there for decades is that if we restrict our intake, especially like women see it be effective under age, probably 30 or 35, they restrict and exercise more. And they can kind of like, I mean, people have said it a million times. They're like, I was fine. And now I'm not, you know, and it's like, well, there's a lot of stress over time. And there's some other shifts that tend to happen. But thyroid is another side effect that sends, tends to get tamped down, which makes us, you know, just makes our entire metabolism slower because it's kind of a master regulator overall. I don't know where I was going with this, Heather, but feel well, free to jump in. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's a perfect segue kind of linking it back to like my own story. Part of the missing piece of my own story was I had no idea that I had hypothyroidism. No wonder I was so constipated for so long. Who knows how long? I'd had hypothyroidism before I officially got, you know, diagnosed with it, which finally required me walking into the doctor's office and demanding like you will test these specific labs because I already know that this is what I'm struggling with. I just need you to test for it. I mean, I was right, thankfully, but I mean, had someone figured that out years prior, I think I would have been in a lot better shape because I was doing all these things to try to help my constipation but my thyroid was 
all sorts of whacked out. And so nothing was working, which was probably the result of constant stress on my body. I had a period of lots of grief after college. My dad passed away. I didn't manage my stress very well. I was running all the time. I was an athlete in college. We were severely overtrained at that time. And so now looking back, I'm like, well, of course this makes sense, you know, but at the time I had no clue, like how all these pieces fit together and really kind of what you were talking about earlier. I think in school we're taught like, okay, this is GI, this is endocrine, this is, you know, cardiovascular, but not being able to link all of them. And I feel like that's truly what I was able to figure out once I started thinking about things in a little bit more of a functional way is, oh, wait, okay, endocrine issues are related to GI issues and really how everything kind of goes together versus seeing them as like separate boxes. Totally. And I just want to comment on like severe overtraining or just overtraining in general and under eating, which is a common thing for high performers. Cause they're like, I got, you know, high performers get their often get their exercise. And sometimes they don't like that. It falls. This is one of the first things to fall for some people. They will say, I, you know, exercise because it helps me with my stress, but sometimes their exercise is unfortunately adding more stress. So I just want to have to just think also a little bit like not, I hope that this is changing, but when I've worked with college athletes, sometimes I'm shocked that there's not more of a nutrition program for them, like to help them be more nourished. Because I remember back when I was in college and hanging out with football players, they just gave them like access to like everything that anything that they could eat, like eat everything. Like here is everything you guys have your own building to eat in, like go eat everything. And for these female athletes that I worked with, like that couldn't be farther from the truth, you know? So anyway, no, so I was much someone the same thing the other day. So we had, I was on the swim team and I mean, there's a lot of issues with this, but the girls had to do extra cardio. The guys didn't have to do extra cardio and just the amount of training we were doing in addition to our two a day swim practices, also adding in a cycling class plus weightlifting. I was just like, this is a lot, you know, for the female body, especially in that age of like 18 to 21, like not that it really would ever be okay, but like just not a good idea. It's such a failure. Yeah. We had one meeting a year with the dietitian of the college and, you know, basically it was like, make sure you're eating enough calories and like, here's my card if you need it. But really her job was to manage the football team. So like, it was kind of like, okay, we checked the box. We talked to the dietitian. We're good. And I mean, we had no idea that this was like such a huge problem and still like looking back, obviously now I see it, but mm-hmm. yeah. And how effective are we in one hour, by the way? Like, wow. Yeah. We can, I mean, like I pack a lot into an hour, but we are minimum. Like, I'm like, I just do not want to do this a la carte thing. Like it doesn't like, I want you to understand your body. Not like, I want you to ask me 10 questions about things that it's like, well, if you understand this system, then this question becomes a point <laughs> type thing. Exactly. Okay. This is good. This is a good chat about kind of disordered. Is there anything else from that time of practice that you feel like would be great for us to chat about. Otherwise I'm going to move into like, I want you to add anything to that conversation that we were just talking about, but then I want to move into, because this whole conversation is you said this starts in the head, right? Which impacts the GI. So I want to move to that conversation next. 
Yeah, well, it's all relatable. So I mean, things I didn't know at that time that affected my digestion, because I think I was taught in, you know, quote, unquote, dietitian school that like, constipation is food related. But now that I know what I know, looking back, okay, I probably wasn't chewing my food very well and taking time for eating a meal. I was definitely not sleeping as much as I should have. You know, I was like, my stress was mismanaged. And those are the things that honestly move the needle the most for most of my clients is taking time to sit down and eat a meal and only eat a meal and chew it really, really well. That cephalic phase of digestion. Because if your body thinks that you are on a work meeting, but you're also eating, your digestive enzyme activity slows down, your stomach acid is not adequate. And, you know, that leads to all the things we were talking about earlier. And so working on some of those things is super effective. Getting your body into a rest and digest state before eating, trying to manage stress throughout the day, getting adequate sleep at night. That's a major stressor for a lot of our clients is like, you know, kind of that whole mentality of I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, no, that's not how it works. That's when your body actually does rest and digest. So getting adequate sleep to optimize gut health as well as hormones and blood sugar and everything else too. Well, let's talk about the cephalic phase of digestion more specifically. Tell us what that means and why it matters because you know, sometimes we need a little bit of a story here to help us understand why we fit into this picture because we don't think like, oh, okay, I guess I do sit at my desk when I'm eating, right? So that's like a tangible thing, number one. And so let's talk about big picture cephalic phase of digestion. And then let's look at it. Like how might that tangibly look and feel? What are some examples of ways that what's going on brain-wise is affecting what's going on digestion-wise? Yeah. So we've all had an experience before where we walk past our favorite bakery, we smell the pastry that is super amazing, and we start salivating. So that's the beginning of the cephalic phase of digestion is your body is like, oh, I'm getting ready to eat a meal. I need to produce saliva. The second part of it really being, all right, now I'm sitting down to eat a meal and I'm chewing my food. Chewing is really the first step in the digestive process where you're actually mechanically breaking down your food before it hits your stomach. So if you're missing that first piece of like smelling your food, kind of relaxing before you sit down, really looking forward to eating this scone or pastry that you just smelled, really regardless of whatever the food is, the communication between your brain and your stomach, enzymes, etc., is not there. And so your body's not connecting, oh, there's food that's coming my way, I need to prepare for this. So that coupled with potentially not focusing on actually eating and not chewing your food really well, now you have this huge, you know, piece of chicken or something landing in your stomach that takes a lot of acid to break down because it's not properly broken down through actually chewing. So food is sitting there longer, which can feel really uncomfortable for people. Often people will say, I feel like food sits in my stomach like a brick, or I feel full for hours, or I just feel super uncomfortable anytime I eat. Sometimes it can be just how they're eating, not necessarily what they're eating. Are they sitting down? Are they chewing their food to applesauce consistency? Are they smelling their food to help initiate that cephalic 
piece of digestion to get stomach acid and enzymes, et cetera, flowing. And as a fun other comment, like this would start for me when I think about what I'm going to have for supper, because the alternative is that I might end the workday and like continue to work beyond the workday, right? And then all of a sudden it's kind of late and I don't have a plan. And, you know, then it's like, you're hairy to just try to like pull something together, which I mean, we have all been in that, those shoes. So I'm being very practical here. So when I have, I'm like not a great meal planner, but if I can have a decision for what I'm going to have tonight for supper, that is a plan. And so therefore I have the right thing thought (laughs) to go with this meal. Right. And so now when I'm trying to activate that cephalic phase, I can be like looking forward to what I'm having for supper, which is pretty hard to do when it's reactionary, isn't it? So we're not perfect. I'm not perfect with this, but sure is more fun when you got a plan, even if it's a plan for that day, it's like, this is, we either have sports tonight or we don't, or we have this. So are we going to eat here or not? Is it crock pot? Is it not? Is it like something I can cook after work? What needs to be pulled together to make it go easier at that time. That for me is like number one before all those other pieces, because if you can look forward to it, it's not reactionary. It's hard to like enjoy it when it's like, I barely got here. (laughs) You know, like I'm just lucky that you guys are eating tonight. (laughs) Um, You're lucky there's food on the table. You didn't get cereal for dinner. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. So that was just my fun, like a practical side note there on the same note. This probably affects travel constipation. Let's talk about travel constipation and whatever you want to say about that. Yeah. Honestly, one of the like biggest questions that I get from my clients is like, I do great at home, but the second I leave my house, you know, nothing goes right. And why is that? And what can I do? And so we all get that travel anxiety. It can slow things down. So kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, stress has a huge impact on your digestive system. So any kind of stress, whether that is change of scenery, change in routine, maybe dehydration from being on a plane, change in eating habits because you were traveling all day and you didn't have snacks and you know whatever else it might be and your blood sugar is dysregulated. So there's a lot of reasons that someone could be constipated while traveling. But the biggest reasons that I see, one, are dehydration, just maybe not having access to water like you normally do. So bring a water bottle with you that you can fill up. Lack of movement or just lack of routine. A lot of our clients find that like when they engage in some kind of movement throughout the day, whether it's a walk or yoga or Pilates or whatever it is, things just work a lot better. So taking time to go on a 10-minute walk while you're traveling can really make a big difference. And then making sure your blood sugar stays stable because that's a stress that a lot of times people don't think about. But when your blood sugar drops, your cortisol spikes and cortisol is a stress hormone. So trying to prevent yourself from getting more stressed about the travel that you might already be stressed about by keeping yourself fueled, keeping yourself fed, making sure that you have snacks. And then kind of like somewhat related to this is trying to still follow some kind of routine. So if you typically eat at certain times throughout the day, try to stick to a similar routine where you're not skipping meals because your body likes that predictability. Just being out of your routine can totally throw things off. And then lastly, giving yourself grace. If It's okay. If you go on vacation and you get constipated for a day, 
knowing that this, no one has ever, you know, remained constipated or never gone to the bathroom ever again, you can get home and get back on a normal routine, you know, pending you have the insight and tools to kind of know what to do, but try not to be too hard on yourself if things get a little bit out of whack while you're gone. And if you know you'll be gone for a long time, and traditionally it's been a problem, then, you know, there might be some agility support you could always try, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I always travel with ginger tea. <laughs> ginger tea. Yep. That's yeah. always a good one. Like it helps support motility. Times of jumping is hard, isn't it? And I have a couple of questions that came up while you were talking there. Cause you were talking about traveling with snacks and making sure, and you're right. Cause like when flight travel mealtimes get really screwy for sure, because you don't often have choices there. And even with regular travel, you don't always have choices for sure. Let's talk a little bit about two of the things that that brings up. Sometimes people think that the blood sugar conversation doesn't apply to them because they don't have like a diagnosable blood sugar issue. So let's talk about some signs that your blood sugar is off. And then let's start there. Yeah. So some signs your blood sugar might be off. You might be kind of hangry or irritable. You might find yourself getting a little bit tired or kind of needing that like afternoon coffee, chocolate, whatever it is. You might find yourself being a little bit shaky, a little bit nauseous. Sometimes it might go along with thirst as well. But I would say the top things are just kind of feeling a little bit moody or reactionary, potentially. It's a big sign for a lot of our clients. And I think it's ideal if you start to feel hungry and you like actually feel hungry. But I was thinking about this. I was at the fair like a day or two ago and you're walking a lot and you're doing things in the morning you start out great. And in the afternoon you're like, ugh, I'm like kind of dead. And then you eat and you're like, oh, I'm great. That's because food is energy if you're yeah. digesting it well. If you're more tired after eating, that's kind of a dead ringer that you're not digesting it well. And it's maybe feeding that good stuff. So I want to mention that because people will say, you know, we talked about that fasting thing earlier and people will say, I feel better when I'm fasting. I'm like, that's because you're not digesting anything. And so you're making like now you ha don't have nutrients in the first place because you weren't digesting and then you added not eating and now you're severely nutrient depleted. So understanding that simple concept that like, if you're not digesting, you're not going to get energy from your food and it'll make you tired is probably pretty potentially pivotal for some people. So throwing that in there. Yeah. Instead of a nap, you might need food. Yes. You might need food, but you also brought up snacks. And so like, you know, when you're walking a bunch, like your blood sugar, maybe like that is a natural way we can reduce blood sugar. But let's talk about migrating motor complex and the conversation about having some space between meals. What do you want to say about that? Yeah. And that actually, I was going to mention that on the travel piece is sometimes when you're traveling, you might be eating more frequently than you are. Maybe you're like walking around and you grab a coffee and then you go and you grab like a scone and then you go to lunch and then you like you know, you're in a new city and you're trying the new foods, like that could be why. And that's okay. Like that's part of traveling. I think, like I said, giving yourself grace for that, but you do have this amazing system in your body called the migrating motor complex. And it's basically your intestinal cleanup crew. So it comes in between meals and it sweeps out your intestines. If you are eating frequently, you're not giving at least three hours ish between meals then this cleanup crew is not showing up. So I find like for me, that was another thing is I was just snacking constantly because I thought, oh, well, if I don't eat a large meal, then I can control my bloat. <laughs> but eating large meals and spacing them out 
can actually help your bloat, help your constipation, help any digestive issue you're having, because it gives that cleanup crew some time to come in and sweep things out, take out the trash, you know, do all those after office hours cleanup tasks that need to be done. So spacing your meals out is really important. But I always tell my clients, if your blood sugar is super unstable, focus on getting your blood sugar stable first before you start spacing your meals out. And then you're just on this crazy blood sugar roller coaster, just making the cycle worse too. And if you don't believe Heather, because you say every time I eat, I'm bloated. She's talked about all the mechanical things today, but you know, there's probably physiological underlying reasons that you're not digesting. Like you might need a little bit of extra help to do that. I just don't think is like super straightforward in every podcast episode. So unfortunately, different people have different bacteria compositions. And when you have overgrowth of certain bacteria compositions, those things need to be addressed. Otherwise, it's really hard to fix this. So like Heather's talking all about these like amazing foundational things that we accidentally let slip and then we're doing those all the time and they are not supporting anything. (laughs) But there's more than just that as well, like to support digestion, right? Yeah, totally. And they all work together. I was Mm -hmm. on a call with some practitioners this morning and we were talking about how like, you know, let's say somebody has SIBO or dysbiosis or whatever it is doesn't necessarily make sense to just like bomb their gut with antimicrobials or anything if like all these other things are out of whack because we have to support digestion. We have to make sure somebody is getting some of that foundational support before we just throw a bunch of herbal products at them. It's often why I see people failing at SIBO treatments or just really any herbal protocol is because they're just focused on taking the herbs and taking the pills and they're not focused on like all the other lifestyle things that can really make a huge difference. And in their defense, even that first step can be a bit overwhelming, like to know everything that's going on in their gut. So it is a lot. I mean, I just feel, and this, this leads me to the next question, which is we started this conversation talking about disordered eating, which is the same as poor food relationship because the same issues happen where we're underfueled or undernourished or restricting, which impacts GI, the mindset affects it, how it digests nutrients and slow motility and poor use of nutrients and how basically your body moves resources to every other organ and downplays what the gut's doing. So it just does not get enough support. So the question mm-hmm. is, so gut health is not just probiotics, right? Mm-mm. But I wish. that would make yeah. everything so easy, <laughs> wouldn't it? And then we would, our jobs, we would not have these jobs. But there are certain probiotics for constipation. What do you want to say about them? Yeah, I mean, there's still so much that we don't know, but there's a lot that we do know. So there are probiotics that can be really beneficial for gut health and constipation. Some of the strains that we know that are really helpful, specifically for constipation, like bifidobacteria which you get from a lot of fibers actually that you can eat in your diet. But there's of course also commercial products available. Lactobacillus strains of bacteria are also really helpful for constipation. There's also some new research about like spore forming probiotics and how those are helpful for constipation. Um, But what I will say is if you are the person that kind of fits in the bucket of like every time I take probiotics, I feel terrible that's a good sign that some of these other things need to happen first before you just start taking a probiotic. Sometimes probiotics can definitely make your symptoms worse if there are underlying things that need to be addressed first. So since we know gut health is not just probiotics, we know there's a lot of pieces to it. 
what is reasonable to expect? Like when you're ready to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to work on my gut health now, what's reasonable to start seeing changes in gut health? And how long do you think it takes to really, like, let's just talk timeline on like the beginning to kind of the long game. Yeah. So what I see in my clients is really like at least six months to like fully kind of feel like you're in a stable place, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, but about six months is ideal. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to feel better before six months, especially if you're constipated. If you can get your bowels moving and you can support motility, you're going to feel so much better within a couple weeks or even a week. If you're having a daily bowel movement and you were only going to the bathroom once or twice a week, like that's going to be a huge game changer for you. So I was talking to a client earlier and she's like, I had no idea how much better I felt until I had a little bit of a setback this weekend. Some of my symptoms from previous came back. Thankfully, they're gone now. But she's like, the changes were so small and incremental that I didn't realize how much better I felt because it wasn't like I just woke up one day and I was not bloated. You know, it's like these slow, tiny changes which can sometimes be hard to recognize, you know, unless they're exacerbated by, in her instance, like she traveled this weekend. And so now that she's home, like things are a little bit better, but sometimes it kind of takes something like that for you to realize how far you've come to. So all that to say, doesn't mean that you're not going to feel good at all for six months, but to really kind of work through all the missing pieces especially if you're incorporating any kind of testing or protocols or whatever, like these things just take time. And the good news about her slow incremental changes is that those are the kind of sustainable ones where she's actually like building a new foundation. A hundred percent, you know, because what she told me was I didn't have a great weekend, but today I feel like I'm totally back to where I was previously. So, you know, it's those slow incremental changes that, then when you do have a setback, you're not set back for weeks or months. It's like a day or two, and then you go back to where you were. So I don't know if anyone here has read the James Clear book, but he has this graphic of basically like, you know, any kind of change that you make, you have like a progressive change, and then you have a setback, and then you have progressive change, and then you hit what's called the valley of disappointment. And then that's when I see a lot of people give up, which is why I don't do what you were saying earlier. Like I I don't want to see people for like an hour because when you do have those setbacks, it's important to remember like why you're doing this and have someone in your corner who can help you recognize that like, yeah, this really sucks that you have this setback, but we're on the right track and we're going to keep moving forward. And here are some changes that we can make because that's what's going to launch you to that sustainable relief that you want. So I always kind of refer back to that graphic. Yeah, That's a good um, resource, Valley of Disappointment. It happens. And that's the thing is like, we are humans. So it doesn't matter what kind of human you are. Most of us are going to like, give up when we feel like we have a setback. And that just doesn't work. And that's why I'm like, you have to understand what you're doing. Otherwise, we're not motivated the majority of us, right? To kind of see the, I mean, results are motivating as well. But if we have a setback, you can have results. You can take two steps forward and one step back. It does happen. Totally. It happens to all of us. And why else? I mean, how else do we land there? (laughs) Steps backwards, right? So there's a huge, the other underlying piece I hear there is that self-awareness becomes 
it's one, I always say it's like the most useful tool we could have, I think. But mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So Heather, where can people find you online? The place I hang out the most is Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram at gutbrain.nutrition. You can also find my website, which is drheatherfinley.co. And yeah, those are the two major places that I am. I have a Pinterest page if you want to follow me or a blog for recipes and all sorts of gut health information as well. Dr. Heather, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.